welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's Katie and I here again. It's a new year and we are the same people. So just uh, don't worry. It's the same chaos as usual. Katie, what is going on in Iowa? What's the news? I feel like it's not the same chaos as usual. No. I cleaned my office. You should be joining Patreon, everybody, so you can see what my office looks like when it's clean. There are no stacks of boxes. Only half of it's clean, but... Well, the part behind you looks lovely. Whatever. The part behind me is very clean. I got my couch back from the reupholsters. It looks amazing. And so I bought a new lamp, and I put my couch in my office, and I put my new lamp up, and it looks very posh. And of course, now I don't have any time to sit on my couch because I have to work even more to make the money to pay for the couch and the lamp. All the reupholstering costs. Yeah. And one of my kids got chocolate on the couch like less than 24 hours after it came back to my home. Well, that is inevitable. So might as well get it done early. Thankfully, the upholsterer had a whole sheet of options of fabrics that are like double, triple scotch guarded before they even leave the fabric factory. So the chocolate came right off, which was nice. Sweet. I mean, also, it's upholstered in dark blue, so that helps. But, yeah. Um, And at least it was chocolate, not poop. (laughs) That's also true. Yeah. That's a, a fun game we've been playing around our house this week. You know, poop or chocolate. Always a classic. Um, how have things been at your place, Arlene? Uh, things are good. We had a party on the weekend. I think I told people about our uh, idea to have a party last year. We did the same thing. This is now our second annual. We thought about having a Christmas party last year and then looked at the weekends in December and thought, that's not going to happen. And so we decided on the week after Christmas because the kids were still home from school. And so we had people who needed jobs to do and so they could help us clean up the barn and get the cows looking their best. And then if you have a party in a barn, there's not really like a capacity limit, which is both good and bad. So we invite people and the kids invite people and my in-laws invite people and the neighbors come. And so I think all told we ended up with about 200 people over a span of hours. It's just like a drop in, come say hi, stay for 10 minutes if you want. Some people stayed for a few hours. Um, So yeah, it was really good. And we have friends who have started a food truck business. So we had our friend Chris look after the smoked meat. So he did did the meat part and people, whoever offered to bring food, we said, yes, absolutely, bring food. So there wasn't actually a ton of prep to do beyond the kind of cleaning and setting up. I provided some food and we provided drinks, but beyond that, a lot of people brought snacks and stuff. And so that was great. The one surprise appearance, though, my plan was like, we'll have plates and napkins, but everything's going to be finger food. We don't need to have cutlery. And in Canada, now they have banned plastics in a lot of settings. So you can no longer, I can order plastic cutlery on Amazon, but if you go to this store, 
you can only get like those wooden ones that like feel horrible in your mouth. So I was like, nah, we just won't bother with cutlery because it's all going to be finger food. And then a lovely person arrived with a whole container of scalloped potatoes. So I had to run up to the house and clear out all my drawers of all the forks that I had because we didn't have any cutlery. Because scalloped potatoes are definitely not a finger food. They're really not, no. They were delicious. I, I feel like I should clarify for our non-Canadian listeners that your dairy barns are very different than ours. Um, I don't know anybody whose barn has space for humans that isn't wall-to-wall machinery and or wall-to-wall cows. So Arlene's barn has like places for humans that do not contain large running motors or cattle. Uh, I just I just feel like we should clarify that. Right. Or yeah. Or containers of chemicals. Or yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that our, like I'm not saying that well, I wouldn't say that every barn has this, but some do. And ours, we ended up designing it that way. And yeah, so we have kind of like a hallway area. And so we host a lot of 4-H meetings or um, barn tours, stuff like that. Sometimes our local milk committee might meet there because we have like a small boardroom and table and stuff. So yeah, it's kind of a space outside of the house that people can congregate. And it looks into our calf barn because we don't allow people in the calf barn other than the people feeding them. So then if, or if we have a school group or something, then people can still see the calves, but not actually have any access to them. So yeah, it wasn't just people hanging out like around the cows. We do actually have some spots. Yeah, I just, I feel like everyone I know around here, like our community college has spaces like the barns that I saw in Canada do. But everyone I know who just like milks at their home or whatever has like, you could be in the milk room with the tank and the pump and the washers and everything. Or you could be in the parlor with mm-hmm. with the cows and those would be your options yeah that's right so the idea of hosting a party in that space is very uh less appealing than your setup yes it would be logistically more difficult especially in the winter time where you're not just hanging out outside too and the our calf barn does have heat in it too so that's an added bonus is the heat that runs to, into the calf barn is in the floor and so that hallway space has a bit of heat in it as well because the calves, the calves get some heat. So it wasn't that we were in January in a freezing, freezing cold space either. So yes, important details if you're going to host a barn party. But it was fun. And today is quiet. We're recording on Monday like we usually try to do. And the three children who are at school and live at home are back in school. And my daughter who's at university went back last night. So the house currently is very we uh same here but we have not had measurable snow since i think before thanksgiving and it is now january so maybe six weeks since we've had any real snow um we're forecast to get six to nine inches of snow tonight so i think the kids are going to have a snow day tomorrow which is a little so they had one day of school yeah perfect which is fine it was lovely to have them home they go to daycare etc etc but it does mean that for the last what two and a half weeks because they go to the same daycare and they go i think to the same room at the same daycare they've been together 24 hours a day and it's it's definitely starting to show 
that everyone is a little yeah. ready for some space. Ready to spend some time yeah. apart. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. All right. Should we introduce our guest for the week? I think we should. Today, we are excited to be talking to Andrew Campbell, who's joining us from my province of Ontario. And Andrew, we start each of our interviews with the same question. So this is your intro to our guests. And we always ask, what are you growing? So that can be crops and livestock and kids, but also businesses and careers and all kinds of other stuff. So Andrew, what are you growing? That's a great question to start off, Arlene, because I think for us, growing is actually what we do every day or we try to do every day. Um, so, so we are growing livestock. So we are dairy farmers uh, here in Ontario. Um, nothing else with a couple of robots and lots of technology kind of invested in over the last couple of years. So both growing livestock and growing the dairy business and investing in it to make sure that it's um, you know kind of modern and works well for cows and for people and all that kind of stuff is pretty important. Um, we grow crops, we grow corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, hay for cows. Um, and then, so some of it's for cows and a lot of it's for grain production. I do brother, um, so we're growing crops, but we're also growing that business as well. Um, you know, we kind of keep taking on a few more acres every year. Um, we grow kids as well. My wife and I, we have a couple of kids, nine and 11. So they're at that very fun age right now where I'm not as smart as I once was in their eyes. I think we're just, a or as funny, I find. That is funny. Well, that's the thing that it just seems like there's more eye rolling than there used to be. That's one thing I growing more eye rolls. Um, it's our growing kids. And then we also actually have a couple of communication businesses um, that, that deal with um, you know, training and development for people in agriculture, as well as communications, things, podcasts and videos and marketing strategies and all that kind of stuff. So we love growing all sorts of things around. Yeah, that is a lot of different things. So we usually want to go into a few details for people who are listening. So with two robots, I can kind of guess how many cows, but for people who aren't dairy farmers, about how many cows does that mean you're milking? So we actually probably have less than you would think for two robots. Um, we're milking, I think the number today, I should have looked um, on the computer beside me, it, it'd be just under 60. Um, and so we were, uh, when we moved into this barn 18 months ago, um, we were milking closer to 70 um, just because production has increased substantially um, on the cows. They seem to love this barn. Um, we're kind of milking less and less all the time. So the robots, um, they have a pretty easy life forever. Yeah, they have some time off. Arlene, I want to point out that when you asked how many he was milking, he turned around to look. <laughs> I looked at the computer. I was like... <laughs> Katie looks out her window, yeah. Arlene always gives me shit about turning around to look to see how many cows we have. I'll look <laughs> out the window, like there's just going to be written down out there. Yeah. I can't even see the cows from this side. Actually, here, let me, let me cow right now. They're all up eating right in front of me here. I'll cow. Well, I think it's a good sign, though, that you're getting the same amount of milk off that many fewer cows. Because less cows is less feed and less vets. Less vets, less just less everything, and and really the the ability for us to pick and choose, you know, really what we think are the best cows, um, for a variety of reasons, just production, a variety of reasons to be tough cows to be able to pick and choose those, um, you know, definitely has helped our product. So, Andrew, quick question before we get into anything serious: Do you still have stress dreams about milking now that you have robots? 
I had, a, I had a stress dream about milking last night and haven't milked in years. You know what? No, I do not. And I still have stress dreams about it. <laughs> it's still stress dreams about, you know what? I, I do not. Never. I actually never really did have too many stressful moments anyway. Um, you know, just because the ones that were here, if it was me or if it was somebody else, you know, we had, we had people that we were pretty trustworthy in, in terms of milking. So was never the stress, um, the stress dream that I had. I stress about other things. Fair enough. I just think it's funny that it's been 10 years since I've milked full-time, and I still have stress dreams about milking. I haven't had an exam one in a while, but maybe because it's 20 years since I was in university, that means that I, I'm out of, out of range of exam dreams, but they used to be uh, pretty prominent for me. The showing up too late or, or forgetting that you had a course that, uh, yeah, that you needed to write an exam on. All right, so where did you grow up and what is your ag background? Um, so I grew up right here, actually. Um, so this is the farm that I grew up on. It's a farm my mom grew up on, um, is kind of the history of the farm. My grandpa bought it in the um, late 50s as, you know, kind of their succession plan as he kind of moved from a couple of side roads over to kind of start his own farm uh, from his dad as brother. Um, so that's kind of where the dairy started. The dairy side started on this farm. Um, then my parents took it over and then, um, you know, so grew up in it, actually went off and, um, you know, my, my education is actually in journalism. So I decided it wasn't necessarily, I didn't want to farm. I just wanted to do something different. And so, um, just never really thought of myself as taking over the farm. Um, and so I went into the world of journalism. And pretty quickly kind of landed in the world of agriculture media. So I was delivering farm news and farm markets and doing a bunch of that kind of stuff um, kind of on a provincial basis in Ontario. Um, I really enjoyed that, you know, got along well. As as I was doing that for a few years, you know, you kind of realign priorities and where do you want to be and what do you want to do and where do you want kids to grow? You know, what do you want to achieve? And um, you know, the, the farm fit a lot of those boxes in terms of a bunch of running your own business and, you know, the lifestyle of a farm, having your kids grow up here and all those kind of things, you know, that, that I took for granted as a kid. Um, you know, I pretty quickly recognized, that, no, I, I, that is something that I need to do. So, yeah, so we came home, we came back to the farm. Oh, what'll it be? It was 2010. Um, I think we actually came into the partnership. Oh, is it that long ago? Oh, I'm getting old. Um, 2010, I think we came, either came home or we came into the partnership at that time, right around that, um, you know, window. Um, and then, you know, we kind of through the fun that is succession planning and business growth and investment and all that kind of stuff um, to the point we are today. So how many years were you actually, quote unquote, away like in terms of being not on the farm actively and then the return. So I was kind of between school and then doing the ag media stuff. I mean, you know, I was, I was seven years away, kind of school and then five years working off the farm. Um, and then, but even, but even in there, I kind of had a bridge where um, it would actually be longer before I was kind of really farming because once we decided we wanted to farm, we kind of, you know, left that job moved to the city of London, which is about 30 minutes from here, so that I was at least closer to be able to help, you know, kind of nights and weekends. 
And then it kind of evolved to, we moved on to one of the farms, but I still commuted back and forth to work um, in London to the point where, um, you know, and that's, that's where our communication company was actually kind of born of is that, um, and I know a lot of people have the conversation about how do you diversify a farm? How do you grow a farm? Um, you know, particularly when another generation comes home with there's salary sitting there waiting to be handed out to the next person that comes along. Um, and so, you know, for us, we, we penciled a lot of things in terms of, you know, we had beef cattle at one time, bringing beef cattle back in operation, um, you know, meat goats, financial done, you know, turkey barn, you know, a whole bunch of different things, but it actually turned once doing it, I could start its own kind of communications company with the skill set and the network I had. Um, with only the purchase of a laptop and um, a new phone. And I can all of a sudden kind of start this business. And so that was actually, even though it's not a traditional farm diversification where you add something or add more acres or growth, um, really that's where it came from was trying to diversify. So, Andrew, this is actually a really good transition. Um, in the States, it's a very, very small percentage of families that make the income that supports their family from farm operations. And I know in Canada, it is different, which is part of why you're here chatting with us today. How many families are getting at least some part of their income from your operation total? Because I know even in the States, you know, a lot of non-ag folks assume that it is one generation, one couple maybe a couple little kids on a farm working, you know, not that it's family compound, like a lot of us seem to have. Yeah. So ours, so ours was, you know, when I was growing up, it was mom and dad and they never had employees. Um, you know, they'd hire a little bit of work in terms of mailing or, or stuff like that, a little custom work to help. Um, you know, generally it was, it was entirely theirs. They did all the work. We did it all entirely. Um, when I came home, um, you know, it was, it was very, as I said before, the, there wasn't another income sitting, um, you know, so it was a case of we had to be kind of creative to do that. Um, and so the communication co company kind of owned that for, uh, you know, my wife and I at the time. And as we grew a little, actually separated that out and we started hiring partners, um, you know, just to be able to milk you know, a couple of nights a week, um, you know, what started out and, you know, one morning on the weekend, um, you know, just to kind of give that little bit of a break. Um, cause, cause, and this will be the same situation for a lot of other ones that, you know, my mom and dad, like they didn't take days off. There was no such thing as missing milking side of, we'd go on a holiday for three days a year, two nights, three days, somewhere that was drivable from that was our summer holiday, um, as a whole family anyway. And so it was one of those where, you know, I, I had decided that wasn't exactly what we wanted. So I should. Um, today it's basically we run mom and dad. Um, and Jess and I each get, um, you know, a little bit of income from the farm. It kind of varies depending on which business is performing what. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of it. And then we do have, um, you know, another young woman who is at university who helps us full-time through the summer we a full-time employee from may till september um and then part through the year and summer and christmas break 
So yeah, it's always interesting the different dynamics that people have and and who's in who's involved and how they they make that work right with with the combination of off farm jobs and who's doing which chores and all that kind of stuff. So one of the reasons that we asked you to come on the show is to talk about supply management. So I'm also a Canadian dairy farmer and part of a supply managed sector here in Canada. And Katie and I have lots of chats about quota and how it works and what it means for those of us who have quota here. And um, she has lots of questions for me usually, and I can usually answer them or I defer some of them to my husband. But we thought it'd be an interesting episode to talk to someone who knows a lot about supply management. And um, so I'm sure that explaining the entire system would take hours or days. Um, but can you give us kind of a, an, a briefing on supply management in Canada or kind of the, the overview of what this system is and how it works? Sure. So so if I can, if you'll let me and te- and just me if we get to day two of this podcast because I've gone on too long. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll take a pause and come back. Yeah. We'll take a pause. Yeah, exactly. Take a take a supper break here in a little while. Um, no, Arlene's been trying to explain it to me for three years, Andrew, and I'm still not entirely sure that I understand it. <laughs> and it just doesn't. And so where? So I'll start with where it came from because I think that is you know I hear the stories of my grand who you know, kind of started with and were, and you know kind of grew up and then you know came along. Um, you know, in, in his farming career. Um, and there's a couple of examples that where it kind of came from. And it was obviously that there's a pile of dairy farmers and a few processors with a very perishable product. Um, that, you know, the regulation in Canada is that if milk is any older than 72 hours, it has to get done. Has to find a home in three days of coming. Um, which makes it very unique in terms of, you know, a commodity that, that, you know, is, is this no matter where it is. Um, so one of the challenges, a couple of the stories that, that he has told me over the years was there was one time that, um, you know, they were milking all jerseys actually, when they first started milking cows, um, they were milking all jerseys, um, and it was going down to a milk processor about an hour to here. Um, and they came along on a Friday and, and we've decided we no longer want Jersey milk. Um, you basically, you have nowhere to ship your milk unless you have Holstein. Um, you're kind of left in, okay, do now, where does this milk go otherwise? Um, and then they also had a couple of situations where somebody would come in and say, um, you know, oh, we actually don't need your milk after all. We've got enough. Oh, but I guess if you want to, I guess we'll take it for the price because, so, so you're kind of left with this. Are you better off getting half or nothing? Like there was just no, there was no real control or power there. And so that's really where it was born up was how do you give a little bit more power to the many, um, you know, so that few don't. That's, that's where it was born. Um, and so the way, the way it works, and it's evolved a little bit over the years, but the basis of it is, is you have quota for butter fat. Um, so for us, we measure in kilograms for UKDB in pounds. Um, you know, how much, how many pounds, how many kilograms of butter can you ship per basically as well? Just the, the ability to be able to ship that. Um, and so for us, obviously, 
is going to fluctuate day to day, but we have kind of this bar that says, okay, we can ship X number of kilograms of butterfly in a day. And with that, then it goes over the whole month. So basically, you know, for us right now, we're on even days. So we know we have 15 milligrams in a month, um, which equals 30 days of quota to be able to in that volume. So then you basically run a spreadsheet every um, every month as basically does that says at the end of the month, I have X number of thousands of kilograms of butter that I within supply management. Um, the goal is always to be a little bit under profitability wise. You always want to hit as much as possible. So you want to get to as close to a hundred percent of what you are able to ship, but it's kind of like the prices right where you can't go old or it's not great to go old. Um, that's always the goal there. Um, so, so really what it is, is you just kind of working around and saying, okay, you know, this many thousands of kilograms of butter fat I need to ship in a month. Um, you know, how many cows does that take? Um, you know, what is the leader and you know, what's the percentage that I've from cows to be able to do that. And, and you just kind of manage through the month to say, okay, this is volume I can produce. If you go over, you just don't get paid. Like that's, that's the thing. So why? And actually, if you go over too much, then you'll actually have a penalty on top of like an overshipment penalty. It's not a huge penalty. Why would you produce milk if you're not going to get paid for it and you actually have to pay to get it? Um, you know, so, so it just doesn't make sense to do that. Um, and that's really where, where it comes down to. And then from the board perspective, from the whole Ontario perspective, <clears throat> All of those are then determined to say, okay, we, we know we have approximately this much milk coming in. Does it meet what processor demand is? Because processors are going to call in. Um, I think it works for the week prior to shipments being sent in. They start booking their orders for what kind of milk they want the next week. Those go through Dairy Farmers Ontario as the producer organization. They handle all of the logistics. In terms of moving the milk. So a milk truck just picks up to my um, barn every other day. I have no idea where it goes. Um, generally, I mean, generally it goes to the same place just because it makes logistics easy. It doesn't have to, nothing says it has to go to fluid, to yogurt, to anything. It goes into a big pool and processors come in and buy loads out of that pool. That's, that's ultimately how milk is purchased. Processors pay dairy farmers in Ontario for that milk. Dairy farmers of Ontario pay us as dairy farmers for that. So then, does your price fluctuate based on components and cell count and that, or is it pretty, pretty set? So, it, so it fluctuates. Some. So the way it works is in, and and it'll be the same for you, Katie. Stop me if it's not quite the same because some of this is what I think is happening too. But you've got obviously classes of milk. You've got class one, two, three, four, five. In those numbers are, you know, class four ABC type thing. Um, so a whole bunch of different classes. Um, certain classes have certain set prices. Um, so it's so it's in the case of four fluid milk. If it's going into two percent, there is a on that line item. That line does not fluctuate. Um, for 
we've seen changes happen, um, which typically are once a year um, for for everybody. So in, in a couple of those classes, it's where the price is low. A couple of the other classes are not. They go off different things. Sometimes it's, um, you know, world pricing. Sometimes it's, um, you know, commodity pricing. Sometimes there's, there's variability for several of the other classes. Um, makes it part of the price. So in a month, you've got, you know, kind of say maybe half your volume is more at a fixed price and half of it is at a fluctuating price. You kind of get, what you get on the pricing side is a window of a range typically where I can, in my spreadsheet, I can put in an approximate revenue. And as long as I fill my quota, um, approximately, this is what the average price will be. And, it, and it'll be within a few cents. Um, but it's not necessarily one where it's clearly knowing exactly what the price is. Um, it's going to fluctuate. The dollar is another one, just where the dollar sits. So then how... Besides the vet bills and the angry cows and all the other problems, what is, is there a financial benefit to having a lower cell count in the tank? Because I know here you get a premium for a lower count. Yeah. So, so generally what happens is no, the way ours works is that you are great. Um, everybody and everybody gets a premium price. Now, if your cell count is not great, not meeting standards, then what happens is you're penalized for it. Um, if you're back to statements too, you're penalized for it. So the way it works more is everybody is classed. Instead of giving the premium to those that do well, you're giving the deduction to those that's more the that we have. So Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the the way the government is involved? Because I think there is some kind of there is sometimes confusion around what is in our control as farmers and what the government kind of does on our behalf, because the program is not technically run by the government, but they do have a role in, in kind of preserving supply management, right. In making sure that, that, that we can continue to, to run this program. Because the government, the government's biggest role is they set the regulation. Right? They have the authority to say certain elements of this can actually in terms of, you know, okay, out of the whole market, 20% of it, or it's come up towards about 20% of the market is going to be imports. It's more than 20%, then they obviously have the authority of order to do something. We don't as dairy farmers. Um, you know, and so there's a whole bunch of regulations like that. Um, biggest elements that the government sits in on are they have the Canadian Dairy Commission, which is a government body. Um, they handle things. It'll be similar for UK in terms of like butter and cheese stocks, putting them into storage when you have that um, you know, ups and downs of the market. Um, they handle um, the Canadian Dairy Commission handles pricing. Their pricing formulas, how how we determine what the price of milk is, ties directly back to what the cost of production numbers are. So their cost of production analysis are done annually. That's here's what it costs to produce milk based on what cost is, then translate into the pricing formula to say, here's what the price needs to be to meet the either increase or decrease in what it actually costs to produce. 
Um, and so they have a role in, um, and then the rest, the regulations in terms of, you know, quality milk and all, all those types of things, technically they're the ones that write the regulations in Canada, um, pretty much everywhere they hand that authority over to the dairy farms, um, you know, to the dairy farms, about to dairy farms, told about everywhere across the country. Um, and then those boards then go and they do the quality inspections. They do, um, you know, you know, kind of handle the logistics of it. They, they basically are given the authority from the. Another thing, Katie, that I think is kind of interesting about the system is that we have a series of deductions, not, not as penalties, but things like transport and marketing, advertising, all of those things, they come off of our milk check as as a deduction and so that's done communally as well you know as as a group so so say if it's advertising for fluid milk or for you know like cheese as a product not as a not as a specific brand but if you're promoting dairy as as a product across the country across the province that's done communally as well so as a group we all agree that is a that is a good that we want we want people to know that dairy is a good product and that we're proud of it so then those deductions come off of each producer and then, you know, Dairy Farmers of Ontario or, or a marketing agency will then be contracted to, to promote what it is that we're producing. So on an individual level, there's not that expectation of like, and you're also in charge of like, you know, telling your community how great milk is. Not that that's not also good, but that not every farmer is involved in every aspect of also marketing. And, and yeah, the transportation piece is taken care of kind of as part of that total payment scheme too. Yeah, and that, I think that's the one that would be unique and correct if I'm wrong. Like for us, we do cover the transportation costs versus the processor covering the transportation costs. Um, within the system, we guarantee delivery to your door. Um, is basically what cost is associated. And then, yeah, as Arlene mentioned, in terms of you know marketing, similar to a checkup, we kind of research and all different things. Like that. So there's there's a couple of extra deductions in terms of. Um, you know, that, that maybe processors in other places would be covering, um, you know, but just because particularly because, it's, um, you know, kind of this pooled product and it gives us the flexibility to say, okay, we, we can move milk and move loads and do all that kind of stuff, um, you know, to try to make it as efficient as possible, getting to the plant that needed. So I feel like there's a difference as well, just from things that Arlene's mentioned about if you get several meters of snow or um and i'm sure it depends on whether it's a uh, an act of god or if it's uh somebody put hot milk in the tank um what is there any protection for farmers as far as not getting a paycheck at all because here to the best of my knowledge you dump that milk tough titties you know no money for you it's a great discussion. So this is actually one of those policy things that is being discussed because, because, and this is going to be a conversation about Ontario because that's kind of the, the policy world that I live more in than other places. Um, but in the past, say, you know, you get those few meters of snow. What has happened in the past is there are areas that are very much more prone to snow than others. So they'll actually typically, instead of having 48 hours worth of milk storage like i um have 72 hours just so they can build their buffer in to get that milk truck 
Um, but if it's a very small area in the past, um, you know, they, they've, they haven't necessarily been compensated for if that snowstorm's a four or five day snowstorm and they can't get in. Um, but what we've seen is in larger situations, um, you know, we had, we had big, big flooding in British Columbia, um, you know, two years ago now, um, where, where milk just couldn't, um, or in our area last Christmas, there was quite a large snowstorm that covered a huge area and producers were told like, we just, it wasn't even necessary that the milk couldn't get there. It's processors couldn't take it. Um, and so like it had to get dumped down the drain. Um, you know, those losses were what we call, we call them pooling losses. Um, and so basically it's a case of recognizing that you probably were going to ship for 10,000 liters. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take maybe a, you know, you didn't get to ship it's over a large area. Maybe a million liters doesn't get shipped. We're basically going to, out of that whole month that paid, we're kind of take half, set off everybody to make sure we can pay over here, um, you know, for what million liters. And because there hasn't necessarily been the consistency to say, in this situation, you will we'll pull the losses. And in this situation, we don't. Those conversations right now are happening to see what is a more consistent way to do this. Um, generally, like in those, in those ones, COVID was another one where, you know, we were up in milk, um, you know, for not a real long period of time. But again, like we're talking cows don't um, So it doesn't have to happen for a very long time for milk to go down the drain. Um, you know, those losses were all poop. Um, you know, so, so that it's it just able to bring up more, um, you know, stability into what were pretty lost, um, you know, in the short time. I guess too, to clarify for our non-dairy farmer listeners, do you guys use the phrase hot milk up there? I have other than on my cereal. Guess not. Um, at, at least here, the, the phrase hot milk or a hot tank is if you have a cow that's been treated with antibiotics or what have you, and there's a withholding period, if she has not, for whatever reason, cleared that medication, or if you're not through that withholding period, it ruins the milk in the tank because there are, no matter what social media tells you, there are very strict limits for what can be in your milk. And if, God forbid, that milk goes on the truck, you pay for the truckload, which is a lot of money. So, yeah, you, you, when you, as soon as you said hot load, that is what is a reference that you would use to. Wouldn't necessarily reflect just an antibiotic. It would be anything that didn't meet quality standards. And a problem would be right. But you put hot milk yes. on your cereal? We're going to circle back to this, Arlene, because. No, that's what, no. No, I wouldn't at all. Like, that's what I was questioning. I was like, I, I hope I don't have to, because. <laughs> Weird damn Canadian thing. I don't know. Curling and poutine <laughs> and hot milk on their cereal. But, but yeah, Katie, so things like that, where, where if it was equipment failure, accident, you know, accidental milking, those kinds of things, those are, those wouldn't be pooled. They would not be. Yeah, that's 100%. If it's your fault, if it's your fault, you are, it's the exact same, that if you put um, you know, that, that, that antibiotic treated cow gets in and that tank has to be dumped. You absolutely get paid for it. Or you pay for that load. You do not 
paid for that milk. You, it's a big enough claim that usually the insurance claim paid for that milk. Yeah, it's a lot of money for our non-dairy farmer friends. Yes, yeah. Um, so I know that I don't know as much about the other sectors that are part of the supply management um, uh, industry, I guess I should say. Um, but I just wanted to clarify for, for our other listeners, for yeah, for our non-dairy, non-Canadian dairy listeners, that um, that also we have supply management for turkeys, um, chickens in the broiler sense, and also for for egg production. So that the this supply management scheme, although they run differently depending on what sec- sector they're in, are also covered in in those parts of Canadian agriculture as well. Sure, which is the hatching eggs, um, and so all of the whole sector feeds the broilers and the egg. Um, layer barns, whole sector too. It's obviously the smallest one, just because there's the smallest number of producers that are producing hatching eggs. Um, the hatching boards are also part of the system. So, so Andrew, can you also explain to us how, if a totally new farmer decided that they wanted to milk cows for some bizarre reason, how would they? <laughs> Love you, dairy farmers. Y'all are nuts. Um, how would they get quota to start milking? Um, so there's a couple of ways that you would do it. Um, one is, um, you know, you, you would go out and you'd purchase an ongoing operation. Um, you know, so it's a case of, you know, a farm like mine, um, can be sold as an entire unit where you get cows go to the barn, everything exists. Um, you know, you, you can do it. Um, so that's that's kind of the one way that, especially if you wanted to get in and go, um, you know, w- would be the way to do it. Um, it's not cheap um, to do that. I say that, but it's also like if you wanted to be a full time grain farmer and to go buy all the equipment and the land and all. Of so it's one of those. You know, it's, it's it's relative. It's one of those things. Um, you know, that's that's one way to. Do it. Um, you know, actually, there was one this area that kind of moved you know, from a farm in British Columbia in poultry and came to Ontario and bought kind of an ongoing operation of start very well. Um, the other way is through a new entrant program. And so there's a couple of programs um, here in Ontario and across provinces will vary on availability and what those look like, I think. But what board will do, um, you know, occasionally is, is pull out um, a small amount of quota out of what is kind of bought and sold monthly and they'll kind of pull out an amount that then goes to a new entrant. Um those are typically small. Um they're not they're not huge amounts. If you want to be if you want to go big right away, you you need to do the ongoing operation side. But if you kind of want to start out, um and I know a few young producers that have that, you know, can go can get new enter program and then kind of go and start their farm and then and then grow kind of increment the rest of us so when it comes to expansion i think that's important to note too that you can bid on quota on a monthly basis but the amount that's available fluctuates and if you're say like in your situations you're coming home to farm andrew and you know you decide that you want want to expand that's not a that's not a a quick process. So, so buying quota is going to take you quite a bit of time because there's such a limited amount on the market on a, on a monthly basis. So you, you basically put a bid in on it, but there's only, 
you know, a small amount kind of available across across the province every month. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of one of those things that, you know, because we're supplying the market and the market is only so big. Um, obviously, you can't have 20% of producers every year decide they're going to grow 50%. And you just have too much more before somebody's got to There is very small amounts you can buy kind of on the quota exchange on a regular basis. Usually where our growth actually comes from is from growth in the market. So as population grows, as you sell more products, whatever the way that happens to be is, then at the end of a year or partly through a year, the dairy board will come along. We have market growth. Um, you know, demand is increasing for milk products. We need 1% more milk from in order to be able to. And that, that's really where the growth would come from. But, but I'm kind of curious in terms of, you know, from, from other models in the U.S., like it's, it's not like necessarily you could go and double your herd size if you don't have the processor to pay, right? How would growth happen in the U.S.? I think, and this isn't really, we're more in the losing dairy farms really fast part of the uh, country. My understanding, because there are folks that have gone to thousands and thousands of cows, um, pretty quickly. My understanding, at least, is that the processors would rather haul from fewer farms. So if they can go to one farm more times a week rather than going to 40 cows and 40 cows and 40 cows, um, probably the smallest herd I know of in our area is 70 or 80 cows. And that's, I mean, that's small for one family. Most people are probably closer to 100 cows, but there's a fair number of places that have just gone big, you know, and are going entirely on volume. Um, it's not a great, not a great solution, but... It is so, because those ones that are expanding, you know, to, to be really large, is that a conversation that before they do that, they ensure the processors there? Do they do in hopes that there will be a home for their milk? Like, how would that process look like? If I if I come home to a farm of 70 cows and say, this isn't enough, we need to be under like, Talk to me, do I just hope? This is the part I don't know. Um, I would assume that you would talk to the processor first, but we've also lost, you know, there used to be a small creamery in every town, you know, and now it goes to a big co-op. I think most, there's a, a cheese factory fairly close to us um, that unfortunately has a name that is very close to our farm name, and I've gotten a number of phone calls for them. Um, but I think most of it gets trucked, I would think, a few hours away. It gets, I think it all gets trucked to Wisconsin. Um, and so it's, it's a, a volume game entirely at this point you know how low can you get your costs and how high can you get your volume and it's i'd love to hear from more of our american listeners who know more about this than i do well i think i think for us and arlene correct me if i'm wrong the way the way the system works for us is you've got kind of this price that you know what happens and it's and it's very much based on the cost of production um 
And I know my, the way that I look at it or the way kind of my philosophy in it is, is that because I change or not really, I can't really change the amount of milk um, I can ship. I can't really change that revenue. The thing I can do is change my expense. Um, you know, so if, so if I want to increase profitability, the thing I need to focus on very much is driving expenses. Um, you know, and making sure that I am doing this as efficiently as possible. Um, and I think it must be happening kind of across the board because what we do see in some of those cost production numbers is things like labor costs actually dropping somewhat in some of the cost of production formula numbers just because with new technology and robots and things like that, people just don't have the same line item of labor they had at one time. Um, you know, and so, so I think it is one of those cases... Thing, the thing that we can control more than anything is what does it cost for us to be able to milk? Um, you know, because we're not forward contracting, we're not doing any of those types of things. So that's the thing that for us we focus in. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of looking at it. I think too for say like the banks, they know also what 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 our revenue is going to be too. So it makes all of those forward projections and, you know, the investments in, in robots or, you know, making improvements, it makes those things safer, more predictable for, for the banks themselves too, to know you have this much quota, it has this much value, you know, there's, and that, you know, they know what our revenues are going to be and those types of things. So, so it makes those, those lending decisions easier. And um, I think that that's, one area where where we have that advantage in terms of of being able to to borrow money because we're not seen as as much of a risk as say a non-supply managed sector because they know that that there's a guarantee that we're going to at least bring in that much money and there's we have an asset that has has value too right that the quota itself has value yeah we are because when i make my five-year projections on revenue um pretty confident in terms of that milk cell number um you know it's it's it, it's a very tight range um in terms of what number looks like in three to five years from now um grain number or cattle sale number or anything like that that's a very wide range number that certainly it was a banker i'd be looking what's the lowest possible number it can be and are they able to service that? um whereas yeah the dairy one is you can take that lowest possible number still within a tighter. I just messaged one of my uh, dairy farmer friends to find out because I think there's maybe also no limit on how much milk prices can change check to check, which makes bankers not super happy, you know, because before they give you a, a shitload of money to put up a new barn or put in robots, they want to know if you're going to be able to give their money back in a timely fashion. Oh. So do Canadians get as grumpy as Americans do about being told what to do? Or have you guys already been so indoctrinated into community and societal care and having health insurance, um, not bitter at all, that it's just seen as kind of this is the way it is? Or how is it... What's the, 
your finger on the pulse of the Canadian dairy industry as a whole. How's that? Correct me if I'm wrong, Arlene. You can tell me if I don't have this right. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a dairy farmer that doesn't support management. Don't like being told what to do. You're wrong. <laughs> we don't. We don't love when standards change or new regulations come in or all those types of things. Principle of it. The idea that, you know, we can work together, um, you know, to be able to, you know, kind of sell milk a bit more leverage than we would otherwise then independently. Um, I know a few big farmers that are, that are very much in favor of it too. They, they wouldn't, um, you know, want to double their herd size and go, um, you know, in a different direction. I think, I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a combination of that. Like it's, you know, we're, we're going to complain about maybe some of the parameters we're in, but the overall idea of it, um, you know, we're, we're very much Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think in a sense, because we are running the system that we're part of, I mean, every dairy producer has, has a say in it that uh, does kind of put the onus on us to make it work and also complain and, and speak up when things aren't going the way that you want them to. But, but because every, every quota holder has, does have a voice in the system and we get, we get to run the system ourselves with the support of the government regulations and tariffs and things that, that keep out foreign imports. That's kind of the key, right? Is that the, they, are, they are letting us fill the needs of the country by keeping, let's say it, mostly American milk out of our country so that we don't we don't have to compete. I mean, I don't like that word necessarily, but but literally we we're we're not fighting each other because we're all producing milk for the country, but we don't have to we don't have to fight for the bottom line against people who are producing milk a lot cheaper than we can for reasons of for lots of different reasons, right? Geography are our labor costs are a lot different than a lot of American farmers. Like there are a lot of ways that we're not on a level playing field and the government also sees domestic production as a priority. So because they see that farmers that produce food within the country are a priority, they protect us, but we have to run the system and make it work. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely people who don't like it, but I mean, a lot of American farmers are being told what they can produce by their processor. So it's it's just someone else who's telling you how much you can produce instead of the system, right? My uh, dairy farmer friend Sarah here says that she's not aware of any limit to how much milk prices can change check to check. And that the co-ops, which would be the processors, have also been adding extra charges and increasing charges over the past few years. And you just kind of take what you can get because there's fewer and fewer processors and they've got more and more control over what happens. And the other thing we're seeing is a lot of um, a lot of the bigger processors, a lot of the bigger bottlers are starting to own their own cows. So it's a, a vertical integration. So Walmart is buying dairy farms because they can just own the whole thing instead of dealing with farmers, which is totally understandable from their perspective, but it's not great for everybody else. Yeah. 
Do they, though, think they can do it cheaper than farmers? Because the question I would ask is, there's a lot of farm families that are, it's in our blood, and we're okay taking that loss because we hope next year will be better. And we kind of keep doing that year over year. Um, I can't imagine Walmart loves taking a loss. Like, do they really think, maybe maybe in times when the price is high, they can probably take advantage and, and sure that profitability but when prices are low there are farm families that will that will take loss that um, you know they really they can do more efficiently than a farm i would imagine that they're getting enough scale that they might be able to do it more profitably and i would guess that any losses offset some sort of income tax you know that if they lose money there they're just using it for their own purposes so god knows anyway let's move on to something more fun let's talk about kids yay oh wait no we've got lots <laughs> more questions about farms never mind yeah i was i was actually gonna get into the communication side of stuff before we talk about kids i mean we'll get to the kids too we are a parenting podcast um but one of the things i was wondering about is i know you do a lot of communications work obviously you have a business in that what is kind of, I was just curious about the difference of when you're communicating with farmers versus communicating about farmers to the public. How does your approach kind of differ with the different audiences? I think the biggest thing for me, because it, you know, I'm a big believer in actually, before you go out and communicate anything, you really have to figure out who you're talking to in the first place because you can't. This doesn't even matter, you know, it, it even goes to a bigger scale than just like farmer, non-farmer. It goes to man versus woman versus adult versus senior versus education levels versus, versus what they prioritize versus what they value. So many things you can think about um, when you're thinking about who's listening and what actually. Um, and so for, for me, that's probably the biggest thing is, you know, the on a non-farm and farm audience is, you know, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of phrasing do they understand? Um, you know, what kind of information do they want? Obviously farmers, um, you know, kind of more interested in a little more technical information, non-farmers, um, you know, more interested in a, in a more, I don't want to say an emotional conversation, but really has to come. The messaging has to come more from an emotional place. Um, really is for me, um, you know, in, in whatever we're trying to do is is start at the beginning of what are they interested in knowing about, um, you know, what what is thing that will actually catch their attention, um, you know, and then what is something that will actually resonate with them. Because even for the three of us sitting here, um, you know, maybe similar, we're going to value, we're going to have different, you know, different things are going to keep us you know, Katie, it's whether or not she milked the cows 10 years ago. Um, you know, for, for me, it's something different than that. So, um, you know, on, on the communication side, my biggest thing with is just who are you talking to and what matters to them? I would like to, uh, sorry, Arlene, I'd like to issue a correction. Walmart is not buying cows. They are building a $350 million milk processing plant in Georgia. But 
they are sourcing all of that milk from 31 farms, which means that they are only dealing with very big farms. And they're just putting the screws a little harder to, to small farmers, which is what it is, I guess. But I wanted to make sure that I mm-hmm. corrected that because... Yeah. Yeah, that's not, not very many farms for a whole lot of milk. Um, so, Andrew, I was watching some of your YouTube videos about the, the building of your new barn and the decisions that went into it and all the tech and everything. Um, and I think it's really interesting to, you know, there's there's lots of us who are are talking about our lives on social media, on podcasts and in different ways. But that also opens us up to criticism or negative feedback. And sometimes that comes from outside the industry, like, you know, animal rights advocates or but then sometimes it also comes from our fellow farmers. Um, so how do you deal with that when it comes to those kinds of interactions, both both public facing and, you know, on the inside, like when you have those negative interactions, how do you deal with them? Um, I think I think for me, the biggest thing is because, yeah, you, you do get them, um, you know, kind of from both saying, you know, might as more come from the animal rights side or environmental side um but but occasionally it does come from within the industry as well um you know criticism that way and and for me i've, I've kind of taken more the more the approach and this and this goes for you know really any conversation you could have about what you eat and what you choose and all that kind of stuff is at the end of the day we're not all going to farm the exact same way we're going to make different decisions in what we do for different reasons um and so for me in the things that I'm doing and the things I'm doing here, I'm not saying in any way that this is the best way you can do it. And if you're not doing it this way, you're an idiot. Um, really what I, what I believe, let alone what, um, a lot more of it is the reason we do it this way is because of why I said, um, and, and I think coming at it from that approach, um, you know, ha- has, I think, less some of that criticism to say, I, because, because honestly, I do. Like when we're making decisions, yeah, those YouTube videos, um, you know, about how we were kind of building the firm, I tried to walk through a lot of those to, um, you know, this, this is my process as to why we've ended up here. And so I think when you, when you kind of come at from, you know, a little bit more of a, personal or vulnerable space and not saying that I am right and you are wrong, um, I think goes a lot further in, in kind of bringing those conversations to light. Um, and then letting people, because ultimately people can make their own decisions. People are very smart. Um, you know, they can make their own decisions based on the information presented to them. I'm going to present the information that I have and when I view it to, choose these things and all of those processes and then you can take it or do not care if you think robots are a great way to milk cows i think they're a great way to milk cows because of this if you think awesome fits better with what you want to do it's the exact same thing in terms of food you don't love to you know consume dairy for whatever reason guess what it doesn't mean that i hate you or that i think you're an you just you just have come up with a different point of view than I have based on what's important to you. I'm happy to discuss with you why 
I think it fits into, um, you know, my life and kids' life and all of that type of thing. If you come up with a different conclusion, awesome. That's great. Um, you know, we, we can, we can agree that at the end of the day, we're, we're just really doing what we think is best for ourselves and our families. Yeah. We say a lot of the same things about parenting too, right? That there's no one way to do this and everybody's got to do what, what works in their house and for their kids and for themselves and with the skills that they have. So yeah, farming, parenting, all those kinds of things. We can all, we can all do it differently and agree that that's okay. So, Andrew, I'm wondering um, how we as producers can be more proactively vulnerable and educational to the general consuming public, um, rather than it's so easy to to be sort of surprised by people's responses to things we do and to end up being very defensive about it because a lot of the groups that say very negative things about what we do, especially as animal agriculture, um, this is their job. You know, they, they have the free time to do it. They don't have cows to milk. You know, they don't have sheep to feed, whatever. They just have time to edit things to look possibly worse than they are. And there are absolutely people who should not be raising animals. That's, that's absolutely true. But then I see videos of things like, um, a, you know, a hip lift being used on a cow and it looks horrible if you don't know why it's being done. Um, so how can we tell our side of these things? you know, of explaining why a hip lift is used, why, you know, why hoof trimming is done, whatever, 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 that might look horrible to people who don't understand why it's being done or how it's being done or, you know, whatever the the rest of it is. I think animal agriculture comes with a lot more emotion than crops do, just because corn is not cute generally you know I mean people can argue about a lot of stuff about crops too but it doesn't have the same emotional impact that cute animals do well I think I think really you you said it in terms of just having those conversations in terms of why you're actually doing um you know my my view is that if I can't if I'm doing practice I really can't explain well as to why I'm doing it and why it's helpful in some way, whether that's in animal care, whether that's in, you know, employee, um, you know, safety, whether it's in whatever the reason. If I don't have a good reason for it, I don't think I should, to be quick. Um, you know, I, I should have a good reason that, that maybe not every person agrees with necessarily. The majority of people can say, oh, wait, that makes sense as to why to do that. You, you talk about something like a hip lifter. Like it's a case of, no, this animal cannot. She needs the assistance, um, you know, because of whatever kind of injury she has to be able to get up and just get that blood moving and flowing and things like that. Um, you know, because it's a cow and because she's heavy, um, you know, I can't go up and just lift her up and say, there isn't. Heck, I can barely do it with a calf anymore. 
Um, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those situations of, okay, the reason I'm going to do this is so that I can lift her. We can get her blood flowing. Um, you know, we can kind of stand and kind of, you know, hold her. That's where a couple of people are going to be around to make sure she doesn't fall right away. Um, we're going to give her a bit of time to just kind of walk around and then we're going to make sure she's kind of comfortable laying down. And we're going to do that a couple of times because the alternative is on a cow that never, ever gets up is that's an end of life decision. Um, you know, so really is a case we're trying to help her along the way in something. Um, does everybody agree with that? Maybe not. Um, does, does it necessarily look great? You know, not necessarily, but I've had, I've had friends and, you know, family that are in the healthcare field, um, you know, kind of talk about the same thing. There are certain things, you know, in a hospital that completely out of context don't look good. Um, you know, they really kind of sit back and say, man, I hope I don't, I hope this doesn't end up on social media because it really looks bad out of context in the grand scheme of things. It's the same thing. Like we have to get this person out moving. We have to move, we have to do whatever it takes to be able to say, okay, we tried our best with the ultimate goal of caring for this being, um, you know, so they can, you know, live another day and improve their health and all that things. So it really goes back to, you know, your original question is just having, having a reason and having that, you know, why, why do you do it and, and being okay explaining? Well, and I think too, it can be so easy to, to get defensive about the implication that we don't care about our animals and that we're just doing things for the fun of trying to pick a cow up or, you know, whatever else. And I don't expect to know everything about my customers' jobs. And it it is easy to forget that people hear antibiotics in feed and have no idea of the range that that might cover or whatever other processes we're using, that that can mean a lot of different things and they can be done for very different reasons. Well, and I, I think when it comes to... Um, you know, kind of that defensive side is that I do, I get annoyed if I find margarine in my brother's fridge. Like, what you grow up on, dude? Like, put the butter. Um, like, it's very easy to get very defensive on that. And one thing I've tried to work on, actually does go along with having these conversations, is, is going back to the, you know, thing we talked about a few minutes ago in terms of recognizing that everybody gets to make their own decision. And we are never, ever going to sell to 100% of the population ever. Um, trying to get there is a waste of time. Um, instead, let's just have those conversations and recognize, oh, you don't, you don't like that? Oh, you, you love, you know, lentils. Guess what? I'm not a huge fan. Um, it's, you know, let, let's have this conversation back and forth about, oh, why do you choose that? Why do I not choose that? Whatever that goes, and then at the end of the day, say, oh, you know, that was a great conversation to just learn from somebody else about what they value, what they think is important, why they make their own decision. And I just love those types of conversations um, in terms of just what makes a person think and do and make their own decisions. Um, and so, so it's becoming much easier for me to be less defensive because I have found if I get defensive and if I argue, 
they're they're going to shut down and they're not going to have this conversation. If I if I treat them as I don't want to be treated, um, you know, not accusing them, not being defensive, not being anything like that, then we can actually have a really good conversation. Hopefully, it opens up to them that if they have more questions, they've got somebody that they can come to to have a conversation. At the very least, I've learned something from them. Here's a person that these are the things that are important and can having that conversation lead me to better conversations down the road because, you know, I've kind of learned as I've got. I'm going to move us kind of into our, uh, some of our parenting related questions. And one conversation that um, Katie and I often have with women specifically is about um, the isolation and the, you know, that difficult transition period to in becoming a parent. And so I was curious about what it was like in the, I mean, your kids are older now, you said they're nine and 11, but, but if you go back to what the early days and months of parenthood were like for you as a dad, what are your kind of memories of, of that time and both the difficulties and the, and the parts of, of becoming a new parent? It's funny when you look back at some of those days, how much you forget and the little things you remember, it's, it's kind of funny that way. I do remember um, one of the one of the memories I do have is our, you know, our daughter's the oldest, she's 11 now. I remember coming home from the hospital, um, you know, first, I, you know, we were in the hospital for, you know, several days. I, you know, lots of time, um, you know, her and our daughter. And when I came home, they were kind of pulling the drill in to start putting soybeans in. I remember kind of that feeling of like, okay, are you okay here? Because now I have check on out here. Instantly, like, oh, you know, like I, I know the priority is here. That doesn't, doesn't take away from the, you know, for sometimes I have to learn. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's kind of where I come, came at it, you know, early on was obviously my kids are mine. At the end of the day, that, that's what my priority is. Um, but if I'm going to give them what I want when I'm actually with them, um, I, I need to step away and prioritize other things so that they're looked after, so that I come into the house and not worry about um, So, So I think the challenge for me was just recognizing that it's okay to prioritize different things at different moments in the day, um, you know, and not necessarily feel guilty of it. That, you know, sometimes it's okay that I, you know, on Saturday morning when they get up early, it's okay that they're watching cartoons and video games and doing all that kind of stuff because that leaves me to prioritize the barn for another couple of hours so that when I get in, I'm not worried about what needs to be done. I'm not worried about that. I can then entirely focus on them. And that's that's kind of the approach that, um, you know, I've, I've tried to take in a lot is, is just trying to back. What is your favorite part about raising kids on the farm? I mean, I know you said that this was a, a decision in part because you had kids. So what, what's the best part of raising them where you grew up? It's a hard one because there's a lot of really fun things about having them on the farm. Um, you know, it's it's fun to, so here, and you know, this is my our office here. Um, you know, flip the camera around, you can see kind of windows all across here. And I can see the feed alley and the cows and the robots you know, kind of the barn action the way it is. Um, to my left, um, that window is where my son flips out his hockey net, um, you know, and starts shooting pucks and balls, and he's got a set of rollerblades, so he's skating up and 
feed Allie. Like, it's a perfect place to be able to do that for him. Um, you know, I, I, I get a lot of joy. And then, you know, my daughter, kind of the, you know, couple of cats we have and the area she has for them and all of that kind of talks the center window just over there. And I can kind of watch her. Um, and the calving pens over there, she loves watching calves get born and all that. So it's fun to be able to just sit and have them experience things in the barn, um, you know, kind of on their own time and want to be out here and do that. That's one thing. Enjoy like being able to sit here at work and watch them at the same time. That's that's a, kind of a fun one from a farm perspective. The other one is the days we have together when we're kind of working on things on the farm. That's one thing that this new barn, the robots kind of provided us was, you know, before we were in a tie cell barn, um, you know, it's not, it's not the greatest place to throw a kid in between two cows and walk her up, um, especially at their age. You just can't. I was never comfortable doing it. They can do a few things around the barn. It's not the work around it. It's limited in terms of what they can do. Whereas this, you know, both because of their age and because of the layout, they can go out, you know, they, their evening chores when they're helping with chores are they rake stalls, they run crossovers, they rinse off robot arms. Um, you know, those are kind of their key jobs. They, um, you know, do their lawn chores for the night. Um, you know, it's fun to be able to do those things with them together, um, you know, and, you know, chat about their day as we work along and, um, you know, about you know, okay, now we've got to drive to the hardware store parts and we're going to fix this together. And, you know, we're going to hop in the combine and, you know, they're, we're going to sit together. Um, you know, you know, yeah, you can push this, you can drive this for a little bit. Just, just opening them up to the experiences of what it is like to be farming, do it side by side. Um, you know, because they're older now, be able to have conversations. Of, like, I just love hearing about, you know, what they did in the day and what they're excited about and you know what they worry about and all those types of things while we are productive kind of at the same time like those are yeah I, I really love being able to do that and and I just if I'm thinking back to my radio days and you know doing news and stuff you know like, like after school they'd be back and forth and you know doing interviews with me while we do that like it just it just isn't possible um, or just would be odd you can't incorporate them into every interview. No, that that would be challenging. <laughs> you can't incorporate them into everything. No, exactly. Whereas you know, this is, and even being able to, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, my daughter's 11, um, you know, the, the little things like she, she helps do a book work, um, you know, a little bit, you know, okay, can you, you know, sort of the receipts? Okay, you've got to enter this number here. You've got to do things like that. Like I'm, I'm a big believer in, I'm happy teaching them how to, you know, drive a skid steer and rake stalls and do that. They they better also know look budget. Um, you know, and see what you know things cost and things like that. Um, you know, I think that's equally as important as the rest of it. Um, you know, so be able to introduce new things as we go along so that, you know, as they get older, whether they decide to farm or not, um, you know, hopefully we've kind of instilled a few skills on in terms of um, you know, that 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 just make them better people yeah for sure so if your kid's playing hockey in the feed alley do you have like the chillest cows in the world very yes they can um we have actually um 
know, I laugh because Thanksgiving time, which for us is October, um, but Thanksgiving time, I, you know, I, um, what is it? I'm up to nine nieces and nephews now on my, on my side of the family. Um, were, you know, kind of flying in ones in Wisconsin, um, you know, ones at West, um, they kind of, you know, traveled in. So there was a lot of children in the barn. The barn is kind of a highlight for everybody because this place that is you know, somewhat protected from the elements, um, you know, on a day that's, you know, so, so there's concrete. So you, you know, kind of run around and shoot pucks easier than you can on, on the driveway. Um, you know, you can kind of do a whole bunch of different things in a whole bunch of different areas, but there was a lot of random, you know, street hockey balls heading off into feed, um, you know, and pups and kids run up and down and, you know, one falls down into the feed and, you know, on the other side, the girls who, you know, other than my daughter, all the rest of them were up like a horse jumping track, jumping over obstacles and doing all of this. And. I can, like, if a ball goes into the feed alley now and you go pick, she, she'll she raise her head out of the way, but she won't even, um, you know, out of your way, unless you go to reach it. And she's like, yeah, I'm not interested that. in that. Just yeah. leave me alone. I'm not interested in that. Cows do. We had a, a set of um, barn like trikes and bicycles that could uh, run up and down. Yeah, because the driveway is too bumpy, but uh, right in front of the feed alley is nice and smooth, right? Well, and that's the thing. The feed alley is exactly the same. And my grandpa tells the story um, when he, when they were, this is when my mom and my dad were very, um, of course, had kind of the same thing. Trikes in the barn and they were always playing in the barn because it was, it was I mean, Grandpa were the ones, the only ones always doing the chores. So the girls were kind of there. And when they're younger, then it's just like playing around. Um, they went to go buy a couple of cows from another farm who was quite a bit, a, a much older, um, who didn't have kids, who didn't have any of that. And the girls walked, ran into the barn. And of course, it's barn. What do you do? What's the first thing a kid does when they go, go in the barn? They run from one end to the other. Um, Grandpa said he <laughs> was worried that those dolls were all going to be ripped out because that action of those two girls running up the alley, which they've done in their barn a hundred times a week. Every yeah. cow jumped up, backed off, bawled like just they could. <laughs> Once they're yes, used to yeah, it, they're pretty good. But if they are not used to it, they do not love children. Yes. So, Andrew, I saw when you stood up at the very beginning of the interview, that there's looks like a, a small mountain of crocs behind you there on the floor. And I was thinking about the fact that it's like the the oh, universal yes. farm family thing that it's like Hansel and Gretel, except instead of breadcrumbs, it's just shoes. And I'd you know, I'd like to just blame my kids, but it's everybody just shoes everywhere. Barn boots, town boots, snow boots, shoes, sandals, whatever. Um and it, you know, it always makes me laugh when you see these like farmhouse entryways and everything's white and there's one pair of shoes total. Like, Or the other one is where they have bins to put your footwear in. And I just can't think about like how disgusting, <laughs> like ours, I made sure our bench was like fully open underneath so you could just like do a full swipe. But like 
I can't, you couldn't put your footwear into a bin because then the it's muddy everywhere. Like it is oh, gross. Yeah. There's mud everywhere. Yeah. I have some, some, some open metal baskets on an open metal shelf for the kids shoes, just to sort of keep one kid's shoes on this side and one kid's shoes on that side, because otherwise they get all mixed together. But yeah, you could power wash them if you wanted this, like, willow hand-woven baskets yeah i know there's at least a few pairs in our barn that are covered in dust so i'm like i don't know who when they were last worn but yeah yeah those that was this that was the summer students and she's coming back and she wants to wear them again i don't know yeah but if you throw them out somebody comes along if you wear my boots like <laughs> Yeah, and there's always that pair in our in our milk room in our barn. There's at least two pairs that don't fit anyone <laughs> on this farm. Where do they yeah. come from? Like she comes to the barn every six months and she wants to make sure her boots are there. Yeah. Doesn't anybody ever ask? Like what? Because I actually I, I do remember one time there was that dusty pair of boots garage and they'd been there for a while moved them around swept under them done all those kinds of things and finally said well clearly nobody wears them. i don't even know who says a foot this is throw them out well my sister trakes along the next week and wonders where her barn boots are like they know you were boots <laughs> like... yeah i know so she wants to do that yeah exactly well, and two, I know I, I threw away some of my husband's work gloves at the end of last winter because, you know, he's oh, first, what? Jim, he <laughs> stole my lined leather gloves, my gloves, got them covered in cow shit, got them soaked in diesel, and then got mad when I threw them away. Like, you know, I'll just buy myself another nice pair of gloves next winter and you can steal those and get them soaked in diesel i'm sorry his hands would have been cold otherwise katie i think what he she has did his own gloves was, well no but they weren't close in fact we weren't exactly sure where they were at the time it was too cold and so therefore we were just going to use it for a minute and i think i can probably keep them clean to put them before you notice and then all of a sudden cow shit got on you and oh well, I might as well really wreck them because I've already wrecked them now. And you just keep wearing them. I have heard this has happened at other places. I would not, of course, I would never do something. You would never. Just pick another pair of gloves out of, um, you know, somebody else's. Actually, my kids are getting older. Um, their mini mitts now relevant for me. And I actually love the mini mitts on a day that isn't real cold. It's just, I like wearing them. So now not only do I get my wife angry, I get my children angry. So this so. is the other thing. I bought my husband literally like 25 pairs of those yellow gloves with the, the red cuffs. I apparently bought 25 pairs of left gloves. There are no right gloves. There's none. Maybe we only have right gloves. I don't know. Like, well, and so, so this is kind of the same. This is the same with me. And like, gloves are one, and sunglasses are the other. The more I have of them, the less I take care of. Because you're like, oh, I'm not even gonna bother to walk. Go get another pair because they're on the shelf. 
And the last pair is the one that lasts the longest because I know, oh, I better go get those because I don't have any others anywhere else. So that's kind of, I have a similar. All right. Well, now that we know approximately what your biggest parenting struggle is and it's barn boots and left gloves. Um, oh, Arlene, this is your question, isn't it? No, it's all right. Why don't you go ahead into our county fair question? Then we'll, I feel like we already did our cussing and discussing, but you said you had one for us. So, uh, yeah. I do. I do. Um, so we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And you can make up a category if you'd like. Ooh, if I'm going to dominate a category fair, what would it be? Well, I've got to say that probably is one of the more random questions I've been asked. Um, so I would say um, one of the things that I um, brings me joy that makes me smile is so we do enter stuff in our local, um, you know, the, the kids put their 4-H cabs in, um, you know, 4-H show or the heifer side. Um, and then we kind of enter and, you know, we'll crop stuff, the stock corn, the cobs of corn, the soybeans, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, by no means, um, would ever tell you that if I get a top ribbon, I am better growing corn than my neighbor. Um, what I do pride myself in is that we do typically do okay on, especially the stocks of corn, um, because... I'm very good at just picking. That's really all it comes down to is I just have the out of the field and have them consistent at all of that. So the ones that I do like dominating are I like winning at least a class or two, not because I think that that makes me a great farmer. It makes me feel like I did a good job choosing. Yes. You were, you were, you were selective, selective enough, enough and you picked, yeah, went, went to the right I, section of exactly. the field. So I will go ahead and move us into our cussing and discussing segment. So listeners, you know that you can send us your cussing and discussing with our speak pipe. Check the show notes for the link or send us an email and Katie and I will read it out for you. So Katie, what are you cussing and or discussing this week? So Arlene, as I mentioned, I even wrote it down so I would not forget it when I thought about it at like 2.30 this morning when I woke up in the midst of my decades old dairy farming stress dream. DNA does not entitle you to have a relationship with someone. If you want to have a relationship with someone, don't be a dick. Be nicer to them, at least as nice as you are to people that you are not genetically related to, and then maybe they will want to maintain a relationship. If you are a dick to them, no amount of DNA is going to help you. That's what I had to say this week. Got it. I feel like there's a story, but I'm not going to ask. There is, but that's just a whole. Maybe you don't want to. Yeah. No. You're not going to talk about it on the podcast. That's okay. I'll send you a message later. Andrew, do you have anything that you want to cuss and discuss this week? The thing that I would, um, you know, cuss to discuss is actually my own inability to ever complete a to-do list. Um, you know, it's really one of those. I filled out my, you know, to-do list once a week. And most of the time, all I do is I write the things from left to onto this week's to-do list. And I sit there and think to myself, 
oh, and I think to myself, like, why don't I just do these things? I know I can't get them all done, but it's amazing how many things I had versus completing the things on my list instead. So, so the thing I'll have to discuss is myself and my ability to ever finish what's on a list. Have you tried adding things you've already done? <laughs> adding things to take down? Well, you know what? I don't. I do have a rule that I don't write it down to strike it like in the moment. I do have a habit of writing things that I know will be very easy to complete. There may be one that says record podcast on Thursday, um, which which is with you. So I know that after this, I will straight. It's not like I actually ever thought I needed that on my list in order to complete it. It makes me feel good that when I go transfer, at least I've got a few lines. Oh, nice. Yeah, you can you can scratch that out in just a few minutes. Yeah. When I feel like it adds a nice momentum to at least have something to cross off, even if it was, you know. I breathed today, you know. I didn't die. That's a check that off. All right, Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? So I'm looping back to our cussing and discussing about uh, mitts and gloves and boots and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to go with, I know they're probably not as comfortable and there's a reason that they design them ergonomically and all that stuff. But I do feel like those mini gloves that we could just have a few more sets of mitts and gloves that are not a right and a left. Like there's a way to make them that way. And then we wouldn't have to be constantly searching for the pair because same in my house, I've, I know there's bins of kids and adults, mitts and gloves that don't have a match. Or as soon as I throw them out, I will find the other hand. But I'll for have forgotten that that was the one that I actually threw out. And then so I will hold on to that. Because, I mean, the same happens with socks. Like there's a pile up there with no matches. But at least if the mitts and the gloves didn't have a right and a left, we could buy a few pairs and not have to worry about matching them to anything. That's my I feel like someday we'll, we'll find out that we're all on some sort of like farm truman show you know punked situation where people are just like stealing all the left gloves from one house and stealing all the right gloves from one house and somewhere all these things are <laughs> the, the glove manufacturers are out to get us yeah <laughs> yeah they're they're all in the farm truck somewhere probably so we want to thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to talk to us today. If people want to connect with you or listen to some of your podcasts that I know that you're on, uh, where's the best place to find you on social media? Best place on social media is Farmer is my handle. So I tend to new stuff. I tend to try as active as I once was on. Um, there's certainly content all through a bunch of platforms, all with a handle Fresh Air Farmer. Perfect. Thank you so much. And Katie, if you want lots of in-depth info on the Canadian dairy industry, the Canadian pod cow is a good, uh, good one to check out. You can listen to Andrew all the time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. Music